This is a talk by Joel titled Transforming Emotions 2 Understanding Emotions, recorded October 2009 at the Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in Castle Rock, Washington. So, to review slightly, delusion is caused by taking imaginary thoughts to be real. And the delusion of self is caused by taking thoughts about the self to be real. Especially the very first distinction the mind makes between I and other subject and object, self and world. That's the foundation of the whole house of cards. And based on that, then when we have thoughts about the self or about the self in relation to others and so forth, they get woven into an ongoing story, the story of I. And the story of I is driven by afflicted emotions. So then the question arises, how do emotions get afflicted in the first place? Where do they all begin? And I think if you investigate, you'll see they come down to a misidentification of three simple little, we could call them biological emotional states. And these three states we could describe as uh, desire, aversion, and indifference. Desire, aversion, and indifference. And we misidentify these states, or we could even think of them as impulses, especially desire and aversion, as belonging to some I. Once that imaginary boundary is in place, oh, they belong to me. They belong inside this boundary. And then we become confused, and we think, well, then our happiness depends on getting what we want, avoiding what we don't want, and filling that gap of indifference. If it's just indifferent, okay, what else you got? So let me just give you one example. Here you are driving to Cloud Mountain. You're uh, an hour or two away. You know that you're going to get only a little bowl of borscht for supper, so you want to have a nice hearty lunch. So you pull into a little strip mall looking for a place to eat. And you pull up in front of a laundromat. Indifference. You probably don't even notice you've pulled up in front of a laundromat because that's not what you're looking for. But the laundromat is arising in consciousness. But the response is just indifference. And so you look off to your left, you look down there, there's a McDonald's hamburger joint. Oh, I don't want to go there. I've already got the high cholesterol and whatnot. So aversion arises. And then you look down to your right, and there's healthy deli. Oh, looks pretty good. We got a little picture of, uh, you know, sprouts in the window and all that. <laughs> so desire arises. That attracts you. You go down to the deli. You're still not quite sure, unless, you're, of course, you're a complete vegetarian. You're a little suspicious. You look on the menu out there. And it says, organic, free-range chicken sandwich. Oh, guilt-free chicken. Yeah. <laughs> In you go. Enjoy your protein-rich lunch, because you're not going to get any protein up here. So, <laughs> so here is just a little example of how 
we've responded to this situation with these three little impulses, these three little states. Now, what's wrong with all this? What's wrong with all this is as long as we're engaged in this activity of grasping what we desire, avoiding what we are averse to, and becoming restless and just moving on from what we're indifferent to, we cannot have insight, spiritual insight, into the true nature of phenomena, and particularly the true nature of ourselves. Because our attention is totally absorbed in this activity of getting, avoiding, or looking. So it's not free to sit back and see the true nature of things, or more importantly, to return to its own source and find out what it is, ultimately. So this is why all mystical traditions make such a big deal of freeing our attention from desire and aversion and indifference. Not all the time. If you're looking for lunch, that's fine. But the trouble is, we never have our attention free from this. Even when we're dreaming, the same dynamic is at work. So here's what, for instance, Chung Su says. Delight and sorrow are there to trap a man on either side so that he has no escape. Fearful and trembling, he can reach no completion. His mind is as though trussed up and suspended between heaven and earth, bewildered and lost in delusion. all comes from being trapped between delight and sorrow, aversion and desire. Here's the great Hindu uh, mystic, Shankara. Those deluded beings who are tied to the objects they experience by the strong cord of desire, so hard to break, remain subject to birth and death. They travel upward and downward, impelled by their own karma, that inescapable law. Upward and downward is uh, almost certainly a relation to various incarnations in the Hindu tradition. You go up, you go down, you go up and down, around and around on this wheel of uh, samsara. And in the Hindu and the Buddhist traditions, this is what drives karma. It conditions us to desire and aversion. We keep acting out of desire and aversion. It's just like a car uh, running along over the same road and it just creates these ruts. And pretty soon the ruts are so deep the car can't go anyplace else. Here's uh, the great Sufi poet Rumi. Someone asked, what is the way? I said, this way is to abandon desires. So you go through all the traditions. They all stress this. This is extremely important. We cannot avoid this and just concentrate on the intellectual aspects of our mental delusion, the fact that we reify thoughts, we take them to be real and so forth, and ignore the fuel that drives this whole thing. And that's what emotions are, starting with these little, simple, but very powerful three states. When I was in L.A. after my awakening and I had been asked to be a teacher and I didn't know much about meditation, I went around looking for a teacher to teach me about meditation. If I was going to be teaching other people, I had to know something about it myself. And I uh, finally, after exploring a little bit, settled on a Tibetan uh, meditation teacher. 
and we would meet at uh, someone's house uh, every week, and we would uh, meditate for an hour. And he would give uh, little talks about meditation, but rarely would he give any talks about Buddhist philosophy or anything like that. He was real practice, practice, practice oriented sort of guy. And at this person's house, they had a lot of uh, expensive uh, Tibetan art and figurines and stuff like that. And one of the things they had on the wall was this big tonka, Tibetan painting, and the tonka was of this mandala. You know, all those rich colors they have in the Tibetan art, the magentas and cobalt blues and bright yellows and all these fierce-looking figures and so forth. And one day, someone asked what that was about and suddenly launched into a rather lengthy little talk, uncharacteristic of him. And he said, well, that's the wheel of time. And sure enough, most mandalas are in the shape of a circle. And on the outside, holding this wheel is this demon, you know, with like three eyes and fangs and wild hair and a necklace of skulls and things like that. Ah! This represents the cosmos. And then there are these concentric rings within the mandala. And there are various things like this, the six states of being, which is where you go when you reincarnate. You go to the hell realms, you go to the god realms, the animal realm, the human realm, and you circle through these six states of being in the Buddhist the cosmology. And then there was these 12 uh, states of conditioned uh, arising, and they're depicted by little pictures showing you the, the various uh, ways that happens. It goes around a circle. And then there are Buddha families and their consorts and bikinis and this and that. And it's, it's a map of delusion, is what it is, in Buddhist terms. At the very center, at the hub, there's a little uh, circle, and there is a rooster biting the tail of a snake who's biting the tail of a pig who's biting the tail of the rooster. Just these three little figures like that, right in the center of it. So he's describing what all these various things are, and then he gets there and he says, the rooster is desire. The snake is aversion. The pig is indifference. And he says, this is what drives the whole wheel of samsara. The whole wheel is driven by these energies. And he said, and you can see this in your lives, just like I've been saying, you can see this in your life when you go to choose a place for lunch, uh, almost everything you do. And then he said, and you can see it in your meditation practice. You're sitting there, and you're having a good meditation. The mind's relatively clear and stable. It feels rather effortless. A little bit of bliss arises. Oh, and there's desire. Oh, oh, I'd like to hang on to this state. Oh, maybe this is going to enlighten me. Just stay here. Oh, oh my God. A little grasping. Okay. And then you go on a little bit, and of course all states are impermanent, so that dissolves away. And that mind starts chatting away again, and then you start getting pain in your knees and this and that. And you say, oh God, why did I sign up for this retreat? I don't know what I'm doing here. Oh, there's aversion. There's the snake. And this goes back and forth between the rooster. Oh, then it comes nice again. Ah, there's the rooster. And there's the snake. There's the rooster. And finally, going through this, I finally just oh, forget it. I, I, I don't care anymore. <laughs> there's the pig. So, 
we can see it, even just while we're sitting here in our meditation. So, that's the first thing we're going to do this morning. We're going to do a round of meditation. Because the first thing we have to be able to do is identify this. It's one thing we talk about it, oh yeah, yeah, you know. But we want to actually be able to uh, sit here and see if we can identify when desire is arising. Just a little bit of desire. Even the desire to shift your leg. Because here's a little discomfort there and, and whatnot. I'm not saying don't shift your leg. All we want to do is identify what is going on. Or a little bit of aversion. You don't like your state of mind. You don't like your thoughts. You don't like this. You don't like the teachings. Whatever it is, just identify it. The hardest one usually is indifference. I just don't care anymore. It's getting kind of dull. And we want to actually label them, just the way we were labeling phenomena in the six uh, fields. So when desire arises, label desire. And when aversion arises, label aversion. And when indifference arises, label indifference. Just like with watching phenomena, wait until you have a nice, clear, definite desire. Don't try to label everything. Don't get into a battle with your mind. You know, well, is that desire? Is that really aversion? I mean, I want to move my foot because there's pain there. Well, I'm averse to the pain, but I have a desire to move my foot. Forget it. (laughs) Again, these distinctions themselves are ultimately imaginary, so don't get in a big problem with that. Whatever your intuition tells you is most prominent there. A lot of these things, there's both at work at the same time. doesn't matter. But we do want to be able to see what is going on in this uh, boundary we call self, and how that is driving us. This is the part of the path that's called know thyself. Getting to know the self. Getting to know how it operates. Getting to know how the mechanism of samsara operates. If we don't know how the mechanism of samsara operates, there's no way we can become free of it. Or if we do actually become free of it, temporarily, it'll crank back into gear at some point and roll right over us. We won't even know what happened. So it's really important. So, uh, let's do one round here. This is just choiceless awareness. Begin with a concentration practice. Get the mind a little stable. Move through the six fields. And uh, allow eventually attention to expand into the total field of consciousness awareness. And just like we do with choiceless awareness, we're allowing phenomena to rise, allowing them to pass and all that. Only now we are being mindful of the emotional response that we're having to all this phenomena. Even this very primitive either desire, aversion, or indifference. And then when you do uh, experience that, label it. Okay.
If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice these instructions. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program. So what did you discover? Is anybody able to identify desire, aversion, difference? Yes, Barbara. In the morning, I seem to be pretty sleepy when I'm starting out, so I notice that I kind of start to nod off, and I wouldn't want that to happen. So I guess that's aversion. Yes, it is. And then I sort of, um, like, try to sit up a little straighter or make some little adjustment now. Then I perk up and I think, well, this is nice. Okay, I think I've got it now. So that must be grasping. Yeah. And just the whole meditation went like that, back and forth between being sleepy and perking up and being sleepy and perking up. Very good. Very good. Who else? Yes. I think I experienced a snooster. Um, there was this, this old injury that comes up on retreat. In the yeah. And um, so there was this aversion to it. It was very strong and very hot. Um, but then there was also a desire in it that I actually watched the mind try to like place it in space and draw the edges around it to somehow try to contain it or define it. I don't know what it was doing, but it was doing it over and over again. So I would soften back into spacious awareness and then I would watch the mind and go right back in and want to draw and create that definition. Great. By the way, we're talking about afflicted desire and aversion here. We're not talking about selfless desire and aversion and a curiosity to see what's going on, a desire to see what's going on, is not an afflicted desire. So don't get confused about that if you think I shouldn't be having that desire. That is actually a spiritual desire, that kind of curiosity to see what's going on. A desire to make someone happy is a selfless desire. It's a compassionate desire. So we're just talking about the desires that are centered around self, getting something for me. So if you have a pain and you identify that pain is mine, I'd like to get away from it, oh, that's definitely aversion, you know what I mean? But if the mind starts getting curious about, gee, what's going on here? It is a form of desire, but it's a spiritual desire. Yes, over here. I desire to do it right. So I got to look at that desire and saw how self-centered. Ah, very good. Because often what seem to be spiritual desires is actually a selfish desire masquerading as a spiritual desire. Very interesting. Yeah? Well, excuse me. 
I was listening to Barb and her comments about... Um, you were what? Listening to Barb just now and her comments about going back and forth between, uh, you know, sleepy and awake. Um, uh, you know, I, I definitely resonate with the desire and aversion qualities of that alternation, but I think it's actually, at least for me, a great deal of indifference. Um, that is, the... Um, Quiet and emptiness of just sitting there is intolerable in a certain way. And, and even though it's completely lovely, what I found is that um, my sleepiness resulted in little dreams and thoughts starting up that were quite more, you know, quite a bit more entertaining. So then, you know, then I would not want to let that happen because I'm supposed to be doing something, you know, the, the same thing she was talking about as far as desires and so on. But, the, but, but I mean, I, I think this indifference thing is, uh, this is the first time I've really um, appreciated it in this small way, you know, this very pervasive. Yeah, yeah. Here in the hall. I found yesterday when uh, walking very slowly that that sleepiness didn't happen. And that um, I could remain alert and not terribly chatty, but there was input. You mean stimulus? Right. Yeah. Just enough, just enough stimulus, so it occurred to me that this is maybe more important. <laughs> this, this practice might be better in the in the spiritual sense or whatever. No, of just having at it. Well, ultimately, yes, we're trying to you know strip away the stimulus. Because the stimulus gets the rooster and the snake and the pig going, you know that's what gets them going. So, but, I mean, I much prefer the other. Well, of course, that's why people don't just sit around meditating all day. <laughs> and the key here is, I much prefer the other. Right. The I, yes, the I has to have activity. If there's no activity, the I stops. The I disappears. So, in order to maintain itself, it needs activity. Of one sort or another. Yes? You, you just said something that, um, well, it, I, I had this experience, a thought, a thought would come, and then uh, with that thought there, I, another thought was there that, well, that must be desire. There must have been a desire for that thought to arise, but yet it seemed to arise spontaneously. Uh, and then, thinking, well, there must have been a desire for that thought to arise or one of the risen, and then as that thought disappeared, another thought came, well, that's either aversion or uh, indifference because now the thought's going away. So, you know, there's these thoughts about these thoughts. Yes, yeah, okay, yeah. But yeah. yet, the original thought seemed spontaneous, but was it, or is there a desire there? Well, I think the point is, we're not trying to figure out there must have been desire. We're trying to identify it immediately as it arises. You know, this, this is why I wanted everybody to go through this. It sounds great when you hear the teaching, but when you actually go try to identify in your own experience, it's much more difficult. So, uh, if you're sitting there and a thought arises about lunch, let's say, that's pretty clearly desire, you know? I wonder what they're going to serve today. I hope it's not that jerk tofu or something. And that, now, that's aversion, right? 
you don't have to think it was that must have been motivated by aversion. So don't try and identify, you know, everything that is it a desire or aversion. You just wait there, just be patient and watch. And begin with anyway the obvious ones. Try to identify them. Okay, that's obviously aversion. Or maybe that's a cycle that goes through. You can see there's aversion and it turns right into desire because I don't want that. So it's, I hope they don't serve that tofu jerky. Gee, last time I was here, they had this wonderful, I don't know, Mexican enchiladas. I hope they have that for lunch today. So it is aversion, it turns right into a desire. So you can see that. And eventually you want to be able to just not be labeling it, but just being experiencing how this is moving and how it's moving you. But we want to begin very simply here. So don't, don't let your mind get caught up in a lot of thinking about the thinking about what's going on. That's getting lost in a chain of thought. Just drop that and go back to your spacious awareness and observe. Okay? Yeah? Um, I have a problem uh, distinguishing between the three. Um, and it occurred to me at the very end that, that things were just happening just a little too fast. And I was trying to slow stuff down. I was trying to parse between the three. Mm-hmm. And at the very end, I caught a movement out of the corner of my eye as you reached towards the, uh, the striker. striker. And the incident was, no. Oh, screw it. Just, I missed a... It was this no. Oh, no. A version? I didn't want it to end. Oh! Oh, wow. Man, that is so... I'm not going to screw it. Just... And I didn't see it until... I mean, I had to sit here and think about it after the fact. I couldn't catch it. So this is why we need practice. We need practice, practice, practice. Now, I'll give you one tip about that. Instead of trying to slow things down, which you won't be able to do, try to relax. Just relax more, rather than trying to make it happen. When we first go look, yeah, it's just going by like a, you know, an express train or something. But the more you settle down, the more it starts just to become obvious. Okay, so let's talk about... Um, more about desire, aversion, and indifference. Once we identify self-centered desire and self-centered aversion, the question is, what can we do about it? Ultimately, we're going to want to transform these energies. But in the meantime, since it really is a moment-to-moment-to-moment operation going here, it's really the driving force in our conditioning, the first thing we need to do is to try to interrupt that a little bit. And as uh, with all other kinds of obstacles, detachment is very important. We have to have attention, we have to pay attention to what's going on, we have to realize, oh, I'm being driven by desire and aversion, and we have to have a commitment to keep watching that, but then we have to practice detachment. And detachment is not repressing desire or aversion. We cannot do anything about the actual desire arising, but what we can do is check the action that would flow from that desire. 
So if you suddenly got a, a pang of hunger for a peanut butter jelly sandwich, you can't do anything about that. It just arises in the mind. Spontaneous thought arises in the mind. What you can't do is remain sitting here and not jump up and run down to the dining hall and make yourself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. No, that's right there. It's a very gross example, but that is the initial step of detachment. So while we're sitting here meditating, the very first thing we do, and the very first part of detachment, is an actual checking. We don't get up and we don't run off to make ourselves the peanut butter jelly sandwich or whatever else uh, you know, desire may pop into our mind to, to go do. So that's great. So we've come that far. And then, though, we want to be able to have the space in which we can experience that little desire, let's say for the peanut butter and jelly sandwich, to arise and it passes and we haven't been moved. We're like the Buddha under the Bodhi tree. And then there's this alertness, the sense of freedom, the sense of, oh, I don't have to be a slave to my desires and aversions. That doesn't mean you never act on desire and aversion. When the session's over and you're hungry, I mean, the donkey's hungry, fine, go get a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. But you're not being driven by desire and aversion. You're acting when it's appropriate and you're not acting when it's inappropriate. And suddenly there's this freedom. The freedom just to do that. So as we're sitting here, we want to be able to identify desire and aversion. We want to be able to let it be there, not shove it away, not say, I shouldn't be feeling any desire. Freedom from desire doesn't mean desire doesn't arise. It means it doesn't control you. Freedom from aversion doesn't mean aversion doesn't arise. It means it doesn't control you. So we want to be able to actually let them arise, to experience them fully. That does not mean encourage them and indulge them and, and say, well, let's get another thought going about that peanut butter and jelly sandwich. No, no, it's arising spontaneously and we let it go spontaneously. It has a life of its own and we give it the space to have a life of its own. And when you can start doing that with one thought about a peanut butter jelly sandwich, oh, fine. If you spent... 20 minutes here in the meditation, and that happened once, that would be beautiful. You'd start to get the hang of it. And you start doing it in your formal practice, and it will start happening in your life in general. And it gets easier and easier, because it's not a doing, it's a ceasing to do. It's a ceasing to be pushed and shoved this way and that. Emotions arise, they come and go, but you're just the space in which this happens, in which it all unfolds. Now, there's one other thing about this that is important, and that is what we're really doing here is after we've interrupted the uh, desire aversion, or after we've interrupted the conditioned response to it, it's important to just the way we do with thoughts to allow it to self-liberate. And that means not just allow it to rise and pass and have our attention go on to whatever else is coming, but to stay with it until it is totally gone. So let's go back to the thought of the peanut butter jelly sandwich. I'm sitting here, 
a strong thought of peanut butter and jelly sandwich comes to mind. I know it's down there in the makings of it or in the dining hall. I get this real, you know, mm, urge to get up and go. I don't. I sit here. I let it pass. Now, normally we let it pass and then we're already, the next thing's on the horizon. But I want to be able to really watch it pass completely. As the Buddhists say, without a trace. So that it is just not there anymore. One of the ways I do that is I don't feed it with another thought and I don't start thinking about, well, okay, I'll have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for lunch and this and that, and then that carries me off to something else and a little bit of the energy is still continuing. I let it arise, I let it absolutely pass. And this is what starts to interrupt on a permanent basis the conditioning, what the Buddhists call karma. Because there's no energy left over to keep the conditioning going to another, to another, to another. I'm going to read you uh, what Sukhne Rinpoche says about this. Most important is tracelessness. No trace left. Like walking, but leaving no footprints. There may be a disturbing emotion, but it can be dissolved without creating any karma. Not rejecting disturbing emotions, but simply allowing them to be self-liberated. Tracelessness shows us it is possible to allow these emotions to arise and yet not create karma. Yet not continue the chain of conditioning, we might put it. That doesn't mean, of course, another desire, thought is going to arise, but it won't be connected to this one. Is everybody following that? Okay, let's practice. We're going to, uh, again, use our spacious awareness, enter into spacious awareness through our progression from concentration through the six fields of awareness into the total uh, space of awareness. And we're going to watch, as we've been doing, just observe all phenomena, all the fields arising and passing away. We're going to practice detachment about them, the sights and sounds and so forth. But we're also going to pay special attention to aversion, desire, and indifference. And when aversion or desire arises, we are going to practice detachment from it. We're going to let it arise. We're going to let it pass. But we're also going to let it self-liberate. We're going to try to experience that moment where it absolutely goes and our attention is right with it. Our attention hasn't wavered in the sense of moved on to something else before it disappeared. So we want to be there for it to arise, we want to be there for it to be, and we want to be there for it when it's gone. And see if we can't get some sense of what Sukhne Rinpoche was saying about when it goes without a trace, there's the sense that the conditioning, at least for that moment, has been broken. It's no longer operating.
If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice these instructions. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program. Okay, so, uh, in the Tibetan tradition, these three little primitive biological emotional states that we've been talking about, desire, aversion, and indifference, are the seeds of the five bigger, more complex afflicted emotions, or sometimes the five poisons you'll read about, which are desire, but now big desire, complex desire, aversion, pride, and then envy, or sometimes it's described as jealousy. And finally, indifference, which at this level is usually described as ignorance, sometimes bewilderment. So we have desire, aversion, pride, envy, and ignorance. And by the way, you're welcome to make notes of all this, but it is all covered in the chapter in my book on purifying emotions. So if you don't want to make notes and you think you might not remember it after the retreat, just go back and look up in that chapter. Not on the retreat, but when you get home. (laughs) Now, we should note here, again, as I said before, there's not a direct one-to-one correspondence between Tibetan terms and English terms, especially about emotions as most cultures do, they divide up the same underlying non-dual reality in a little bit different ways. Just like uh, in Europe they use meter sticks and here we use yard sticks and uh, they don't fit exactly. But that shouldn't concern us because we're just using these names of the emotions as labels to go identify what's going on within us. But we have a lot more terms in our normal English usage than just these five terms for emotions. We have nostalgia and sorrow and fear and all kinds of other things. So I've actually expanded the Tibetan list a little bit to try to make that clear, but also to deal with some uh, divisions that we have that are very prominent in our language. So, for instance, sorrow is not on this list, but I've included sorrow along with desire. It's in the same category. And the reason I do that is because uh, the very same objects that we desire, when we lose them, we feel sad. So, sadness, you could say, is a flavor of desire. Desire is the wanting the object, and the sadness is the losing the object, but it's the flip side of the same coin in a way. The same thing with aversion. The two main forms of aversion, the way we talk about it in English, are anger and fear. And you can see the relation when we talk about the fight-or-flight syndrome. That when we encounter an object that we are strongly averse to, our response is either to fight it, 
get rid of it, destroy it, or run from it, flee from it. So it's the same root aversion here, but we, uh, we at least talk about it differently. We break it up that way. So if we then look at the schema that we're going to use for this retreat, we have one, desire and sorrow. And under desire and sorrow, we include things like lust, greed, ambition, avarice, everything that has this you know, sense of wanting to grasp, hold, possess, own, all that stuff. Or under sorrow, disappointment, sadness, anguish, grief. They can be rather mild or they can be really overwhelming, overwhelming grief or something like that. Aversion then is anger and fear and anger includes everything from aggravation to resentment to hatred. So you might really resent something. Uh, it's not quite full-blown hatred there, but it's more than just a little aversion that you have to uh, pungent smell in the bathroom or something. And then fear is anxiety, apprehension, terror, panic, the whole range of that kind of emotion. Envy is pretty straightforward. It includes jealousy, self-pity. Trungpa, another Tibetan master, used to describe it as paranoia. And he describes it at some length. The sense that life is uh, leaving you behind. That other people are getting ahead and getting things and that you're somehow on the outs. And you become paranoid, not because you think everybody's after you, but you become paranoid about your situation in life. And then pride is self-satisfaction, conceit, and then total arrogance. Those kinds of range of feelings. Then ignorance, which I don't think most of us in English, it doesn't carry such an emotional content, but it can manifest in ways we would think of as emotion, like confusion, bewilderment, <clears throat> and it also can manifest as boredom, indifference is the root of it, Sloth, torpor, despair. Despair in the sense that there just seems nothing to do, no way out, that kind of thing. So again, it ranges from, you know, a mild indifference to a real strong sense of despair. Uh, any questions about that? Yeah. And with arrogance, is it also, my understanding of it is it's inferiority, superiority, Arrogance and security. Oh, yes, yes. Insecurity would be a sort of a neurotic form of pride. It's sort of the negative side of pride. Self-loathing, guilt, those kinds of emotions would probably come under that. So, yes, it does have a, a flip side. Very stupid. Thank you. Anybody else have questions? Yes. And despair, you said, comes under ignorance. Would right. come under sorrow? Well, again, you know, we're kind of splitting hairs in here, but I'm using despair when you arrive at that state where you don't know what to do next. So, you're right, despair can be used as tremendous sorrow, you know, you're just overwhelmed with grief or something like that. If you're feeling that, call it sorrow. But if you've come to a place where you just don't know what to do, or you just don't know where to turn to, that comes from an ignorance and there's that feeling trapped. Uh, I was going to say this earlier and didn't, I guess the moment had passed, but uh, I guess it was last night, the last, the second to last sit of the night, just as it was ending, I realized 
I'm enjoying this. Oh my gosh. And it occurred to me until that moment. And then I, I started to go to the next one, realizing, ah, I can enjoy this. This isn't just work here. You know, this is actually just an element of pleasure. And as you're reading these things down, especially ignorance and this sloth and this, this last one, I thought it's kind of like that, that feeling of not enjoying it has a component to me of ignorance. And so I was, I was remembering back towards uh, some advice I was once given, not just me, um, the principle of acting as if, even if you're not in a place, like even if I'm not feeling joy towards the practice, right. if I sort of act like I am, if I put a smile on my face, it, it can actually initiate the thing. You know, you, your body will follow the spirit of it. And I thought right. you just might have something to say about that, because it seems like that would be a really good mm. little trick, you know, especially when we came to that last one. Uh, I, yeah, but we don't want tricks here. And not that okay. it couldn't be valuable tools used in life and so forth. But here, we are not interested in tricks that are going to temporarily solve it. We're interested in actually seeing what is going on, the true nature of things. So, we don't want... What? (laughs) But it sucks. Well, that's the point. Whether you enjoy it or whether it sucks, it doesn't matter. (laughs) It's irrelevant. So, you might enjoy seeing the true nature of things, and hopefully you will. The people do get to a certain point on the path where even the things that suck, you enjoy the opportunity to get to the bottom and see the true nature of things. And we can open up other dimensions. So what sucks is still sucks and it's still going on, but now there's a dimension of awareness about it that doesn't necessarily directly transforms that, but it transforms our response to the fact that it sucks. So stay with that. Don't bring in little tricks. Leave your tricks at home. Leave your tricks at home, son. Don't bring your tricks to retreat, son. Leave your tricks at home. (laughs) Never mind. Let's go on. We're having too much fun. Okay, so. What's the difference between little uh, or primitive desire, aversion, and indifference and these five afflicted emotions? or seven if you want to break up anger and fear and and sorrow and joy. And really the difference is a matter of scale and intensity. And just as a kind of a rule of thumb, the little emotions, the aversion, desire, and difference, they are what rule our moment-to-moment lives. They uh, kick in when we're trying to figure out, you know, what to have for lunch or what to watch on television or what movie to go to or something like that. And the bigger ones are the ones that drive the bigger plot lines in our stories of I. So what mate you're going to get, house, travel, career, jobs, and so forth. It really is not very important for the practice here. Desires, desire, aversions, aversion. And even a little envy is a little envy. If somebody next to you seems to be enjoying themselves on this retreat and you're not and you have a little envy, that's still envy. So, but... It starts with these little seeds, and that's why we want to become acutely aware of what's going on, because these little seeds blossom into these big, overwhelming emotions that really tug us one way or another through life. So, how do we then liberate, or sometimes we could call it purify, these emotions? How do we liberate them from the story of I? And there are actually two ways. There's the Janana approach and the Bhakti approach. And the Bhakti approach is basically we identify the love at the root of any emotion that arises 
We identify that love and we realize the emotion is afflicted because we are directing the love at a source that cannot support it and we redirect it to the divine. We're not going to do that on this retreat. If you're interested in that, there's a part of that chapter on liberating emotions in my book. See, i got this book now. I can just direct people to it. But we are going to do the Janana approach. And the Janana approach, it's so simple, but it's hard to do. But the principle of it is so simple. The way we liberate emotions from the story of I is we look directly at the emotion and we recognize its true nature. Not the way it appears within the context of the story of I, but the naked energy of the emotion. We're going to be talking more about this, but let me read you Lama Gendan Rinpoche. Here's what he says. On this path, we do not seek to abandon the five emotions, only to look directly at their essence or reality, upon which they are automatically transformed right then and there into the five wisdom energies. Looking directly at the essence or nature of an emotion is a method which can be applied in all cases, just as we can use a single medicine to cure a hundred illnesses. So, whatever emotion is arising, we do want to identify it because then we want to be able to see at least get a glimpse of what kind of energy is uh, its essence. But we're not doing anything with the emotion. We're not tinkering with it. We're not thinking about it differently. We're not doing it as if. And no tricks. We just look directly at it. And then it automatically transforms into what it really is. Let's keep coming back to this because the mind's going to want to do all sorts of things because you're going to be frustrated. I guarantee this. You're going to have these emotions. You're going to look at them. You say, what's Joel talking about? What are these dumb llamas talking about? Good God, they're going crazy sitting up in the Himalayas for a thousand years. But you've got to keep going back and looking. Keep looking. Keep looking. So, what do these uh, emotions transform into? And again, here's going to be a list, but we're going to Every day we're going to be dealing with one of them here, so it's going to get repeated, so you don't have to memorize it. Desire transforms into discriminating wisdom of love. And sorrow transforms into compassion. In the Tibetan tradition, it's taught together. So desire transforms into discriminating wisdom of love and compassion, but I think it makes sense, actually, to split them up. Aversion, which is actually anger and fear, transform into mirror-like wisdom of clarity. Either one will transform into mirror-like wisdom of clarity. Envy or jealousy transforms into all-accomplishing wisdom of virtuous action. Pride transforms into the wisdom of selfless equanimity. And ignorance or bewilderment transforms into the wisdom of dynamic space which is a Tibetan metaphor for enlightenment or gnosis or realization. So, note there's an asymmetry here. Because ignorance transforms into enlightenment, which is the basis of these other wisdom energies. I mean, not that you can't get a glimpse of the other wisdom energies and actually even make use of them unless you're enlightened. But each of the four Afflicted emotions has a specific flavor, we might say, of 
non-dual wisdom, but ignorance transforms into non-dual wisdom itself. Or we could look at it as ignorance is the potential energy which manifests as uh, heat energy or radiant energy or connecting energy or some specific form of energy. But it all comes from a potential energy which doesn't yet have a form. So the others are forms of formlessness. Okay, so now there's something else that's very important. Remember that the way we transform these emotions is to look directly at them. We cannot look directly at them unless they are present in awareness. So we cannot figure this out mentally and think back, so, oh yeah, I remember the time that I was angry. Now, oh yes, I can see how anger could be a, a kind of wisdom-like clarity. And now I got it. Okay, great. No. That's, that's right. But I'm not going to piss you off. You're going to piss yourself off. <laughs> We are going to be trying to recall uh, incidents from our lives where we felt strong emotions in order to be able to look directly at those emotions as they are occurring in consciousness. Right as they're occurring, just like the Lana said, right then and there, and look directly at them and see if we can't see their true nature. Yes? What if we've already worked really hard on one and dissolved it? Do we really want to drag it up again? <laughs> well, you haven't resolved it if you, if you have that attitude towards it. <laughs> I got really hard. I resolved it. I put it in the closet. I don't want to open that closet ever again. <laughs> if you don't open the closet, then you can't access the wisdom energy. The Tibetans say this. If you could really abandon these emotions, get rid of these emotions, the afflicted desires that you never satisfy the anger, the fear, the envy that makes you feel creepy, the pride that you're wise enough to know that this is not uh, authentic, and stupidity, if you could get rid of all those, it'd be like throwing away jewels. It'd be like just going through your house and picking out your most precious jewels and just throwing them in the garbage. So, yes, we want to bring it out of the closet. We don't want to resolve in any kind of psychological way, these afflicted emotions, we want to see their true nature. And then they will be jewels. We'll value them. We would never want to get rid of any of these. Okay? So, now, we have to bring these emotions up, and this comes back to what we've started to work on here. We want to be able to do it in the context of spacious awareness. It's the spacious awareness that gives us the ability not to be overwhelmed, not to be carried away in these emotional storms so we can be like the Buddha under the Bodhi tree and when Mara's demon armies come to try to drive him off, he looks straight at them. In fact, he transforms their spears by holding up his hand and they hit his hand, they turn into blossoms of compassion. That's a symbol for what's going on here. So we want to be like the Buddha. We need that spaciousness. So as I said, I love that line from our ex-president. Bring them on. Bring on the dancing girls. Bring on the demon armies. Bring on whichever you got. And I have the space to embrace it. 
I have that compassionate, open, curious wisdom space to embrace it. Did Bush say that? (laughs) (laughs) No, but he should have. He would have been a great president. (laughs) So, uh, So we need to really work on this spacious awareness. So, we're going to spend the rest of the afternoon just practicing spacious awareness. And then tomorrow morning we're going to begin tackling each of these afflicted emotions and seeing how we can transform them. Okay? First, let me refresh your memory about the practice, how we enter spacious awareness. We begin with concentration, then move through each of the sense fields, and you don't have to spend a lot of time in each of the sense fields, but we do want to become aware. We want to make sure our attention is really expanding and diffusing through all the fields of sensory phenomena and finally mental phenomena and that's a very interesting one to actually pause there especially when you have this sense of being present for all the other phenomena and then you kind of invite thought in and thought comes in and because your attention is evenly diffused uh, you can actually have a sense of real detachment from thought without working at it you just see oh thought is just like here's a sound Here's a sensation, here's a thought, here's, it becomes equal with everything else rather than coming in and dominating everything else and moving everything else around. You spend some time with that and then you make sure your attention is really diffused to the total field of consciousness awareness and then if you detect a little tension trying to hold something still or still control something or whatever, you surrender that. And you become like that bird that Sukhne Rinpoche talked about. It's just soaring in space, not going anywhere, not worrying about what's to the right, the left, in front, behind, above, below. You're not standing still, but you ain't going anywhere either. Joe? Yes? So we're not labeling the desire of an aversion? Thank you. Yeah, let's drop the labeling for now and just practice in spacious awareness. You might become aware, just spontaneously, a desire is here, great, or aversion, but you're not looking or trying to label. Only distraction now here is if you get caught up in a chain of thought and you get carried away, that's a fault. Nothing else is a fault, everything else is choices. We're not trying to focus on this or that. But if you do get carried away in a chain of thought, okay, you notice it, Cut off the chain of thought. If you're not too lost, just come back to spacious awareness. If you're just totally gone, go back to concentration and work your way back out into spacious awareness. Okay. Here we go. You've now reached the end of this talk. 
Continue practicing at least once a day until you are thoroughly familiar with these instructions. Then continue with the next talk for more teachings and instructions.